Good evening, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. My name's Clemency Burton-Hill from BBC Radio 3. Uh, I'm lucky enough that uh, this is a sort of second home from home for me as I get to often uh, broadcast the Radio 3 lunchtime concerts from Wigmall on a Monday afternoon. Uh, many, many thanks to all of you for being here for this Artists in Conversation. It is such a foul night out there, so everyone would have been forgiven if uh, they'd wanted to just stay cosy at home, but I promise we are in for such a rewarding treat this evening. It's absolutely worth the journey. Uh, we have with us at Wigmore tonight one of the foremost violinists of his generation. James Ennis is gifted with a rare combination of stunning virtuosity, serene lyricism, and an unfaltering musicality. No surprise then that conductors the world over want to work with him. He's collaborated with the likes of Vladimir Ashkenazi, Marin Alsop, Sir Andrew Davis, Charles Dutois, Mark Elder, Ivan Fischer, Edward Gardner, Pavo Yervi, Jan Andrea Nozeda, and I could go on. He's worked with orchestras including, amongst others, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Chicago, Cleveland, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, Pittsburgh, New York, London Symphony Orchestra, the Philharmonia, the BBC Philharmonic, the Czech Philharmonic and many others besides. Meanwhile, his discography is extensive. He's recorded more than six, uh, 40 albums, excuse me, uh, and his recordings have won no fewer than nine Junos, a Grammy and a Gramophone Award. He's also artistic director of the Seattle Chamber Music Society, and he has his own string quartet founded in 2010. Despite all of that, he is incredibly humble and modest, which is why he preferred to be waiting backstage rather than sit here embarrassed while I list all his accomplishments. But please join me in giving a tremendously warm welcome to James Ennis. I didn't say probably the most embarrassing thing, which is that your playing has been described no less as a marvel. It is marvelous indeed to have you with us, James. So thank, thank you, you very so much. much for being here. It's great to be here. You arrived in the UK a fortnight ago, and it's fair to say you've had a pretty busy couple of weeks. Tell us what you've been up to. Yeah, I've had a, a busy and kind of unusual last couple of weeks. Uh, it was, I, I think it was two weeks ago yesterday that uh, I had a performance at uh, Royal Albert Hall uh, that was the launch of a very good friend's uh, tour. He, a, a composer named James Newton Howard, who is a uh, predominantly a film composer uh, for big Hollywood blockbusters. And uh, this was uh, a tour celebrating 30 years in film. Uh, I got to know him when he wrote a concerto for me a couple years ago, and we became very good friends. So I, uh, it was pretty much the most fun and easy gig ever because I played for five minutes and uh, uh, we played Albert Hall and then went to, to Budapest and then Concertgebouw in Amsterdam and um, I just played this beautiful five minute piece uh, excerpted from a film, uh, for, from the score of a film called The Village. Uh, and uh, that was great and that was uh, kind of an, an unusual thing to do. Uh, the whole orchestra was, was mic'd and they insisted on me being mic'd. Um, so that was a little odd, uh, but uh, it certainly was uh, was a, a fun uh, a fun thing to do. I play with the Royal Academy Orchestra. That was uh, they unfortunately just played the first concert of the tour, but uh, I do some work at the Royal Academy as a visiting professor, and um, I'm always 
inspired being around those great young people. Yeah. So How are they faring, time. those youngsters? Are you impressed? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, every time I go there, and actually just uh, a week ago, I was uh, there for a master class, and every time I spend time there, I, I come away feeling very optimistic about the future of this profession. Uh, so that was, yeah, that was two weeks ago, and after that mini tour of my five-minute piece, <laughs> I, uh, I came to Liverpool to play a 14-minute piece, um, which <laughs> was the, uh, the beautiful Lark Ascending of Vaughan Williams, and that's a piece that um, I know in this country is particularly beloved because everyone tells me it's the number one on classic fm every year <laughs> year in year out and uh you know english music doesn't doesn't always come across the ocean the way i think it deserves to um lark ascending is one of uh one of the pieces that uh, that gets played in north america but it doesn't get programmed that much, and uh, I've actually had not so many chances to, to play it, and it was a very special thing to get to, to play it in, in Liverpool with Andrew Manzi conducting, because this is uh, an orchestra and a conductor that I'm very, very close with, and in fact, just exactly a year before we had recorded uh, the Beethoven Concerto together, and that's, you know, the kind of experience that forms pretty deep bonds. Well, you were either going to want to work together forever or never again, I suspect, exactly. after Exactly. Well, luckily, it was, um, it, it was the former. And you recorded The Luck Ascending, is that right? Yeah. So there was one performance of that and, uh, and then a recording, and then I came to London. And when can we look uh, forward to the recording? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, it is going to be coupled with the Sea Symphony. Uh, Andrew Manzi is in the, in the midst of recording all the Von Williams symphonies with the Liverpool Phil, and the performance of the Sea Symphony on that concert was one of the most thrilling musical experiences of my life. I, no exaggeration, it was absolutely incredible. So why? Tell us um, more. Well, Andrew Manzi is uh, an amazing musician. Uh, I would imagine that that many of you probably know of him, possibly uh, as a violinist, as a Baroque violinist. Uh, he was one of the the truly great violinists of, of that type uh, for many, many years. And sadly, he doesn't play the violin anymore, but happily, he has become one of my absolute favorite conductors and uh, in repertoire from the absolute contemporary to the, the very ancient. Um, he's just a very, uh, a very honest, very pure musician. Uh, his music making speaks to me very, very, profoundly and directly. And can I ask if it makes a difference that he's a violinist himself, particularly when you're recording something like the Beethoven or indeed the Luck Ascending, does he have a particular sensibility or understanding of what you have to do as a soloist that another conductor wouldn't have? It would be tempting to to explain certain aspects of why he's easy to play with as being well because he was a violinist himself, but but I think it's actually that that's probably a bit of a lazy way of looking at it. I think he's just a he's a great musician and a great conductor, and and uh, there are great musicians and conductors and accompanists I've worked with that are that were not violinists. Um, so I I don't know. I think that there's there's sort of a, a shared um, how would how would I say this? Like a, we we can commiserate over the the difficulties of the pieces since we've both been through it. But um, I think that really all of the great 
conductors that I've had a chance to work with have in common uh, an understanding of how best to work with a soloist, whether it's a violin soloist or really any other instrument. So we will look forward to that recording of the Sea Symphony and the Lark Ascending. And so then you headed to London, is that right? Yeah, well, I, I had a couple, to a couple days with friends in Kent, which was really nice. And, uh, and then, yeah, I was in London for a concert at St. John Smith Square um, on Tuesday, which was uh, the Shostakovich second piano trio and the Messiaen Quartet for the end of time. So. And now I'm playing Bach. So it, there's been a lot of variety these last few weeks, and, uh, and I found that really musically inspiring and, and uh, violinistically very interesting, too. You know, I think that if, you, if you're playing the same thing over and over, you might be good at that thing, but uh, you certainly the, the demands instrumentally are very different on these different pieces I've been playing, so hopefully that's kept my playing uh, well-rounded, I guess. I'm sure we can all agree that it's definitely kept it well-rounded, but James, I mean, you're, you're known for this fantastically varied and diverse repertoire. I mentioned your huge discography. You've recorded very many different composers. Uh, perhaps your core repertoire, we might say, is kind of late Romanticism, early 20th century European composers, often Brooke, Bartok, Prokofiev, Shostakovich. Tonight, though, as you say, lucky us on this miserable evening, we are going back to the father of them all to J.S. Bach. Every well, violinist. You know, it's has a funny a thing about core them. repertoire, right? Because core repertoire is much more in the eye of of the person who sees what you're doing. Like I, I think that there are places where where I have played mostly music of Bach and Mozart, and then there are places where I've played music mostly by Bartok and Messia and Shostakovich and Ravel, and uh, sometimes those places are not very far apart geographically, <laughs> and uh, and it has it has amused me at times that uh, like for example there was a period of time where um, I read I read something about myself in Baltimore as being a specialist in the classical repertoire, and then read something about myself in Washington about how I was a specialist in 20th century repertoire. Now those are like really not very far apart places, but, um, but anyway, yes, yeah, sorry. This all reflects the fact that actually music is your core repertoire and, and you're quite unique. Well, that the violin is just so lucky to mm. have so much good stuff. Um, and, uh, I have been very lucky to have the opportunity to to explore um, that the repertoire that that means a lot to me. I guess I would say that uh, that I've had I've had these opportunities to explore uh, a lot of different sides of the violin repertoire, and I also have uh, pretty broad tastes. <laughs> um, I don't play music that I don't love. Um, I don't have to play music that I don't love anymore, which is I think one of the best things about the advancement of one's career, <laughs> you know, you, you really um, don't have to convince yourself, yes, it's good, I promise, you know. It, it, Did you ever have to, though? What were you oh, playing yeah, early ev days? Everybody has to, to do that sometimes, and you know, there is Let that. Let us in on a little secret, we won't tell anyone. <laughs> what were you playing early on that you didn't really love? I will go to my death without telling you what that is, <laughs> but... Um, I tried, audience, you know, sorry. The, the thing is, you, that... that uh, you have to love it as you're playing it. You know, if, you, if there's a 20-minute piece, even if it is a 
piece I just do not like. If I have to play it, then for 20 minutes I have to find a way to love it and I have to find a way to buy into it and I have to find a way as best I can to convince other people of its value and of its merits. Um, when you're younger, when you're making, you're trying to actually make a career out of, out of playing music, I mean, when somebody calls and they say, we'll give you money to play your violin and this is what you have to do, you kind of say yes, right? Um, and and, it's, uh, it's, uh, and uh, it's really an astonishingly joyful transformation when you get to that point where you know, a presenter at a beautiful hall like this says, well, what would you like to play? And it's like, really? You mean I can pick anything I want? Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's very special. Though there is, you know, there's always that leap of faith with new music. And recently I've been playing actually quite a, quite a number of, of premieres of things. And I've gotten really, really lucky. Like, I feel like I should have gone to Vegas and gambled because I've been, you know, I've been on a roll here where all these pieces that I've been fortunate enough to to um, to play from from the ground up uh, have been fantastic. But you know, th that there's no guarantee. Even the greatest of composers, not every piece is going to be their greatest piece. Give us some examples then of who you've been playing recently that you've enjoyed. Well, actually, I mentioned this this man, James Newton Howard, that he wrote this concerto for me a couple of years ago, and I just love this piece. It's it's fantastic. Um, it's in many ways a very traditional violin concerto. It's three movements. It's basically fast, slow, fast. There's nothing. It makes no attempt to be groundbreaking in particular, but there's no moment of it that ever sounds like anybody else. I think that's uh, quite an astonishing thing. And um, then there's a, a composer named Aaron J. Kernis that, um, actually I have a bit of a, a UK history with him. My first collaboration with him was uh, at the BBC Proms about 10 years ago where this was another one of these things. I thought I was almost getting a prank phone call because I get a call saying, "Well, you know, this is this is so and so at the at the BBC Proms, and we actually have some extra money, so we'd like you to commission a piece." I'm like, "Yeah, right. No one ever has extra money." But no, there was a commission that had fallen through, and um, so quite late in the planning process, they said, um, "Could you consider working with a composer for a, for a new work?" I thought, well, yeah, what an incredible opportunity. And uh, Aaron J. Kernis is this composer that I'd gotten to know some of his music. Um, and uh, I thought, well, there's no way that he will be able to write a piece for me. I mean, he had already won a Pulitzer at this point and was very, you know, um, heavily booked. <laughs> and uh, I got in touch with him. And this was one of these amazing things that, that uh, I guess was just sort of meant to be because he said, oh, violin and piano. Yeah, you know, I actually have a violin and piano piece that's kind of in my head that needs to, to come out. And I thought, oh, well, that's a lucky thing. So anyway, I played um, the debut was in London. And uh, then that started a, a friendship and a, and a uh, sort of a collaboration where we thought, okay, someday there's got to be a concerto. And finally, the concerto happened uh, this past season. And uh, yeah, this this violin concerto by Aaron J. Kernis is the most amazing piece. It's the most difficult piece I've ever played. It, I, I mean, he is a dear friend and someone that I 
admire and 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 really like a very great deal and there were so many times practicing it that I thought about doing horrible things to him and his family uh, <laughs> but uh, but it, it's it was an interesting thing and actually okay how I'm gonna bring it into Bach here this is um, hard to do but the music of Bach the solo music of Bach um, so much of it is well written for the violin, and so much of it is written with barely a thought of what is practical and possible on the instrument. But it is possible, you know, it can be done. And, uh, and this Kernis Concerto has many aspects like that as well, where I think that sometimes performers, and I understand this mindset, but we confuse impossible with inconvenient. And uh, so we'll take a look at a piece and say, well, you, you can't do that because, you know, this and this and this and this. But if you really take the time, there's usually a way to figure it out, even if it means a very big investment in time and energy. And, you know, Bach, I think about the, the many sections of these sonatas and partitas, if, if they did not exist, and if a composer were to write them today for most violinists, the violinist would send them back and say, well, what you're asking for here, you know, it doesn't really work that way. You can't really do that on a violin. Um, yet the music is so great that over the centuries, people have realized it's worth finding a way and figuring it out. And part of that process of finding a way and figuring it out, I think, I think it played a tremendously important role in the development of violin playing in general. You know, I think that uh, these pieces, as much as anything ever written, have formed um, the way that players play today and the things that, that we can do on, on string instruments. Well, it's also impossible to imagine any violinist not having them in their repertoire. I imagine composers, contemporary composers around the world, if they hear you saying this, they'll go, yes, James Ennis, on our side. You know, now, whenever a soloist complains about the fact that something's impossible or unplayable, we'll just go, well, I'm sorry, but look at Bach. You know, looked impossible, had to play it, you know, the get number, over it. <laughs> the number of violin concerti, of standard pieces, that have at some point in their early history evidence of some player saying, no, can't be done, impossible. You know, that, there's, that, that is such a common thread uh, mm -hmm. with violin pieces and, uh, and, well, actually pieces for other instruments as well, of course, but, but each one of them sort of advances the, the art form. And we shouldn't ever mistake you for someone who's not intrepid when it comes to things that feel difficult. I mean, your first disc was Paganini Caprice it's in 1995, so you were always up for a, a violinistic and virtuosic challenge, is it fair to say? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, I tell people, I, I grew up in the prairies of Canada, and, um, and I was a bad hockey player, and it, they have long, long, cold winters. So you have to find something to do with your time. And for me, it was Paganini Caprices. <laughs> so back to Bach. When did your relationship start with this music? How long have you had it in your fingers and heart and soul? That's hard to say. Um, I suppose some bits of it uh, go back a long, long time. I think, I think that the first movements that I learned were, were 
selections out of the third partita. Uh, I think that's my my understanding is that's sort of common. There are some of those movements that are not technically so challenging, and those are, are often a student's introduction to to the solo Bach music. Uh, that I don't know. I mean, maybe when I was seven or eight, uh, I started poking around with some of those things. It's hard to say. Um, and I think by the time I was by the time I was in about my mid-teens, you know, maybe 14, 15, I had kind of worked my way through all of them. Um, I didn't have the kind of uh, career trajectory um, where it went like this, you know, where there was no event in, in my early career that sort of launched things. You know, it wasn't like I won some big competition that all of a sudden meant I was playing 100 concerts a year instead of five. <laughs> it, was, it, it was gradual, and that, that allowed me, as I was building my repertoire, to, to program a lot of different pieces. Um, I'm very grateful that by the time I was, I don't know, 18 or something like that, I. I had performed all of the sonatas and partitas, um, even if it, you know just once or something like that, because then you, you can rotate through that stuff. It, it's harder in a way when you get older to to work the music into you. And I think that people people talk about, of course, in all aspects of, of life, you know, the way that the the brain develops and and uh, how it's sometimes apparently more difficult to do things when you're when you're older but i think that i try not to think that way because that makes me feel like old and useless but what i do, do born feel, in 1976 <laughs> i should point out but what i i do feel that that as life goes on life gets complicated you know when you're 16 well, I was 16 and, and I had a few concerts and none of them were extremely high profile things or anything. They, there would be an opportunity to play, say, the, the C major sonata uh, that I'm playing tonight and that could be a major focus. It could be the major focus of my mind for as long as it needed to be before getting that, that concert ready. I mean, now, if I have to learn a new piece, like the, when I'm learning new repertoire, I'm basically learning it in the second half of the concert where I played a different concerto on the first half. You know, I mean, that's just the way life is, and it's when I'm on the road, I'm cramming in the time, because I've got two little kids, and when I go home, I want to spend time with them, and, you know, it just, it's not, it's not so easy. So uh, I feel grateful that, that with a lot of this iconic repertoire that these are pieces that I've lived with and that have sort of settled in me for a long time. And every so often I have the opportunity to deconstruct them. And I like to convince myself that I'm basically starting from a very fresh place, but I, but I realize that I'm actually building on a groundwork that has mm. been a foundation that is, has been in place for many years through many experiences. So I'm always fascinated with artists, you know, particularly when it's repertoire that you revisit again and again and again throughout your life, how your relationship to that music changes. Mm -hmm. Because an interpretation that is 
absolutely true and authentic to you as a 16-year-old might not be the same uh, same interpretation that you have as a 41-year-old. Uh, how is it possible to talk about how you feel your relationship with music evolves over time? I think that the pieces that I love most, by and large, are pieces that I always loved. Um, there have been some pieces that uh, that didn't speak to me until a certain point. But by the point I played any of them, they, they were pieces that were very close to me and that, that I loved. And the way that I feel about the music really hasn't changed at all, but I've changed. <laughs> uh, so sometimes when, when people say, well, well, how would you compare the, the way you feel about a piece now to the way you felt about it 20 years ago? And I think, well, that would be a question for someone else, you know, to have to maybe someone who had heard me play it years before and hear me play it now. I mean, on the rare occasion where I will revisit an old recording, whether it's an actual CD or some sort of live performance archival tape, um, it has the, the feeling for me of looking at an old photograph where it's me, but it's me from then. Um, so I, I think that, uh, that the way that the, these pieces speak to me, um, now you know, they're rooted in all sorts of, of, of the experiences that I've had in my life. And, if I have the, the good fortune of playing them in 20 years or in 40 years, they will be based on all the experiences that happened between now and then. But um, I think that every performer, hopefully, feels at the point that they're playing a piece that right now is when I really understand it. And uh, you know, I'm now at a place in my career where I've started actually recording certain pieces again. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an unusual thing because in each case of the, where I've recorded a piece a second time, I feel strongly like the second one is better, just, just better. But then I think about my own collection of recordings and I think of pieces by you know, great, great performers of the past where I might have a recording they made when they were 35 and when they did when they were 57 and when they did when they were 70 and I think well they surely thought each one of them at the time was better than the last but that's not necessarily how I feel mm -hmm. so you know I think about like that that recording you referenced that I made way back in 95 of the Paganini Caprices I re-recorded them in about 2007 and I definitely think that I prefer the the later set but there are probably people that prefer the earlier set you know and i recorded these box sonatas and partitas years and years ago and uh i don't know if i play them differently or not because i don't really have any particular interest in listening to that old recording but it could be that there are people that do have interest in listening to that recording and they might say, oh, wow, I really like the way you play it now way better. Or they might say, yeah, I like the way you played it when you were younger. I don't, and that's, you know, what can I do, right? It's such a fascinating position, though, to be able to make that comparison. I mean, think yeah. of, I don't know, Glenn Gould, fellow Canadian, you know, great uh, comparator of his Goldbergs mm -hmm. early and late. And, and what a joy and treat that is for audiences to be able to 
have that reference across the decades. Well, it's a, you know, it's a leap of faith when you, when you perform a piece. Um, I think something that, uh, a trap that young performers fall into is playing the way they think the audience wants to hear it. Um, but you can never know the way anyone wants to hear it. You can only know the way you think it has to go. And um, I think that, I think honestly as a performer, you have to have a, a rational understanding that, okay, this hall seats, what, 500 people? And I'm gonna play it the way the music speaks to me and if 251 people like it, then it's a success. And if 249 people like it, then it's a failure, you know? And you have to have the confidence that more people are going to agree with you and, and hear music the way you hear it. And it's such a luxury, like in a city like, like London, um, you know, that, that as, uh, they're just, there's, there's so many concerts. As a music lover, there's so many different things to, to see and listen to. And you can listen to somebody and say, yeah, that's not my thing, and you can go hear somebody else. Um, it's not like, you know, the town where I grew up in, if there was a concert, I mean, that was the concert, and everybody went to that. So describe our child, your childhood for us. I mean, how did you fall in love with the violin? Why did you even start playing? I was surrounded by music because my father was the trumpet professor at the university in the... In the, the city, I use that loosely, uh, where I grew up. It's a, it is a, a small city, but uh, it was about 35,000 people at the time that I was growing up there, a place called Brandon in western Manitoba that, uh, you know, that's obviously by numbers not a big city, but the Canadian prairies are so spread out and sparsely populated that cities of that size actually take on uh, significance and importance. Uh, in that it would be the largest center for, say, 150 miles in any wow. direction. Um, Winnipeg was the closest big city to us, which was about a two and a half hour drive. But um, the music school at Brandon University was a very, very special place that uh, in the sort of mid to later 60s, there was this very remarkable man who took it upon himself to try to build uh, an incredible music school that would be in a place that could be sort of an oasis for, for students to, you know, I think that, you know, there are some people that, that thrive on um, a community at a, at a school where uh, there's lots going on. You know, go study in London, go study in New York. There's lots of musicians. You're inspired by other people. There's go to concerts, see this, that, and the other thing. And then there's also, there's real value in um, a music school in a place that is small, where there's a tremendous amount of personal attention, where there aren't really a great deal of distractions. And uh, that, I think, describes Brandon pretty well. Um, You're anyway, selling it. <laughs> it's, uh, it was a wonderful place to grow up because there was this incredible faculty of, uh, at the School of Music of really exceptional musicians and exceptional people, uh, very brilliant and well-rounded people that I found and still find to this day very inspiring. And um, my mother had been a ballet dancer and opened a ballet school in town when, uh, when they moved there before I was born. So between the two of them, most of the people I came across were 
artists of some kind and mostly musicians. So everybody played an instrument, or so I thought. And uh, I was actually surprisingly old when I realized that there were there was such a thing as amateur musicians. I remember there was this kid in my school and uh, somehow it came up, oh, my mom plays piano. I said, well, where does she play or you know, what does she do? No, no, she just plays for fun in the house. She plays for fun, like, who does this for fun? You know, <laughs> uh, it just, it was just not the, the type of thing I'd been around. Whereas so many kids that studied music around where I was, music was only ever thought to be a hobby, uh, they thought that was very unusual. That it's like, no, no, my, my dad is a professional musician. They said, oh, you can do that? Um, but I mean, I remember when I, I begged for a violin. For some reason, I really locked onto the violin. I really wanted a violin. I don't know why. Uh, How old were you when you first locked on? Uh, I was about four or maybe even slightly younger than that. Um, my birthday is in January, and I got a violin for Christmas before my fifth birthday. So I was four and 11 months or something when I started. But at that point, I had been asking for one for quite some time. I mean, from my memory, which is very, very vague of those days, it seemed like I was asking for one forever. <laughs> but uh, I know that there are, I've seen a picture of me in my backyard with, I remember I had these two sticks. I don't remember if they were the same sticks or I'd just find two random sticks, but one was my violin and one was my bow. And the picture, there's no snow on the ground, so I can use that to, to judge that it the had... The one it, month of the year where it doesn't it snow? Had, it was at least before October, yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and I've, I wanted to play the violin. And, I mean, how weird is this? That I had this idea that I wanted to be a violin soloist when I was you know, five, six years old, because I knew that people did this. And uh, I would go to different rooms in my house, and I'd say, you know, I'd, I'd go play my Twinkle Twinkle Little Star up in my parents' bedroom, and you know, that was London. <laughs> and I'd go to my, my uh, basement, and that was Berlin, you know, or whatever it might be, and, and very, very silly. Um, but yeah, as I it liked turned the out, not silly at all. <laughs> as someone who plays regularly in the great concert halls of London and Berlin and everywhere else, did it always feel inevitable? Then it was sort of written in your stars. Um, you know, I had such tremendous encouragement from people uh, that I, I can't say that it felt inevitable, but it never felt impossible. And that, that was, in retrospect, very, very important, because I think that, I think it would have been very easy for people to have said just offhand, well, that will not happen. Because mm -hmm. um, it was an unusual thing for me to come out of this little town. And, but, um, but there was, yeah, I was surrounded by people that said, well, you know, go for it, see how, work hard, see how far you can go with this. And uh, it was around the time I was 10, 11, 12, that, um, that I had these opportunities to, to compete at these national Canadian competitions. And, uh, and that was the first, I think that was the first understanding that, that any of us, you know, meaning me and my family and teachers, um, that that, that, that I had potential outside of my town. <laughs> uh, I mean, my, 
my parents, my teachers, they always believed in me, but you know, it's hard when you, when you grow up in, in a place that is as isolated. I mean, I'm seeing younger people out here, I'm like, back in these old days, you know, we didn't have the interwebs and all that. And, uh, but it's true, you know, there, there was, how did I know? How did any of us know what 10-year-old kids were playing like in Toronto or Montreal? No idea. Um, all we knew was that um, I was working hard and, and they thought that I was progressing well and, uh, and then that turned out to be true. And then that, that gave me the confidence to move forward and then it was in my sort of early teens that um, I went away to, to a camp that was very, very special and important to, to me in my development, a place called Meadowmount in America. And, uh, for the first time, I was surrounded by lots of kids that loved it just as much as me. And, uh, you know, that's, that I think is always a, a special thing for a young musician when, when you, you feel that camaraderie uh, for the first time. You went to America, you still live in the US, in Florida, I believe, but um, you're wearing uh, the Order of Canada badge. Very discreet, but very lovely there. Um, in 2007, you became the youngest person ever elected as a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, and then in 2010, made a member of the Order of Canada. Is it fair to say that your roots are still very important to you? Absolutely. Um, I, I luckily get to spend a great deal of time uh, up in Canada, not so much in my hometown anymore because my parents, um, they retired and have actually moved to Florida like all Canadians do eventually. <laughs> um, but but I, I spend a lot of time up in Canada um, and make a point of it because uh, it's important to me. And um, I think that the Canada, Canada, what does that mean? The infrastructure of the Canadian music world and so many Canadians um, did so much to, to help me out. Uh, the Canada Council for the Arts, um, through, through grants that, uh, that they have, uh, that they really helped uh, facilitate my, my studies in America. And um, they uh, provided me with my first great violin, actually. They have an instrument bank there, and uh, I played on a, a Stradivarius that was part of the Canada Council's collection for uh, five years, and five very important years at the beginning of my career. So, um, yeah, I'm very, very proud to, uh, to be Canadian and, and very um, honored uh, that, that I've been uh, given so many great opportunities from a great country. I'm glad you bring up Strad, because the last time you and I met was at Oxford, and the Ashmolean Museum at the time were mounting a really extraordinary exhibition of uh, Stradivarius violins, and you were playing uh, one of them at that point. Now, I love the idea of you as a kid with your two sticks in the garden, and now you play one of the great instruments on this earth. One of the best sticks. Yeah. The best <laughs> sticks. <laughs> Tell us about your fiddle, at the risk of making me green with envy. <laughs> well, uh, my violin was um, made in 1715. It is a Stradivarius. Uh, interestingly, that, that's from right around the time that these sonatas and partitas mm. were written by Bach. Um, I've known the instrument for over 20 years now at this point. I first saw it um, Wow, actually, right around now, it was sort of mid to late November of 1996. And 
it, there, it was a very long and complex process <laughs> of trying to find a way to, to secure it for my use. Um, but I started playing on it regularly in September of 99. And, uh, you know, I, I have been a, a, a violin junkie for um, my whole life. And uh, it's one of the, the, the great joys of my life to uh, to see great instruments and study them and try uh, play on them try to learn things try to find sounds that can inspire me uh, musically and you know find a find a sound in some violin that then encourages me to try to find that in my own um, so I've had the uh, the incredible good fortune of, of playing sometimes a lot or sometimes even just a little, but on over 120 Strad violins Amazing. at this point. The audible gasp from the front <laughs> row, I know. Well, I have to say I'm a violin junkie too at a slightly different scale and I had never played a Strad until I was in Oxford making this documentary for the BBC about Stradivarius. And it's funny because you imagine what it might be like and you have this fantasy and this dream and then the reality for me was so far transcended by the actual experience of playing a Strad. Could you talk to us about the relationship with this particular violin? I mean, why this one? Why did you go after this one, pursue it if you like? I mean, and do you feel like you are in a relationship with it? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there are, there are various great violins, but uh, I haven't come across any that I would just trade for the one I have now. I mean, you know, if <laughs> there would be, you know, financial aspects and issues of, you know, condition and purity and this and that, but in terms of the sound, um, this is it. Yeah, you know, because at a, at a certain point, what are you looking for in an instrument? You're looking for an instrument that is that is better than you and is always gonna be better than you, and that is going to offer possibilities um, that will always keep you inspired and moving forward with your, um, with your ambitions. Uh, I think that for me it's very important that an instrument can go in lots of different directions sonically. Uh, there are some Especially if it's going to be your violin, let's face it, it's going to have to do a lot of work and a lot of different <laughs> repertoire. Well, you know, there are there are people that some of us play our violins and some of us our violins play us to a certain extent. You know, there are there are people that that uh, well, I had one really good friend who uh, was playing on one very beautiful violin and then got another very beautiful violin that he was completely infatuated with and this violin had particular tonal characteristics that encouraged him to exploit those particular tonal characteristics despite them not necessarily being musically appropriate. Um, and, they, you know, that, it, no one, I, well, I don't know, maybe some of you came here to hear a violin, but I don't think that's really what people, you know, you don't come to a concert to hear an instrument, you come to hear music that is, played on that instrument. And so to have an instrument that you, with an incredibly broad range of possibilities, um, that to me is, is very special, you know? And well, we talked earlier um, about how, 
you know, that, that in, in certain places I tend to be asked to play certain types of things, and then other places maybe certain types of other things. And it's very, um, it's very rewarding to me that, that this is an instrument that um, can feel like the right violin for, say, a Mozart concerto, and mm. then the next week can feel like the right violin for Shostakovich, and the next week can be the right violin for solo Bach and then the right violin for some contemporary piece in a 3,000-seat hall. Um, and indeed, you know, as I mentioned, you're not just a soloist, you are a passionate chamber musician as well, so the right violin for not just solo repertoire but chamber repertoire too. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, there are, there are some instruments that, um, yeah, that are harder, that are harder to contain in certain mm -hmm. ways. Like, um, there are some instruments where you can play beautifully softly, but you can't really expand the sound so well and there are other instruments that they speak out so beautifully but if you really want to be intimate with the sound they have maybe a certain lack of focus or a lack of um, articulation um, so yeah all of this all of this goes into to making an instrument great I think that um, I think that that my instrument like people say well, what's your instrument's personality and I think, well, my instrument doesn't really have a personality, which is fantastic. Like, it, it is like the best, it's the best tool ever. It's like, well, what do you want to do today? And it doesn't, it doesn't make anything easier. You know, it doesn't do the job for you, unfortunately. I, I wish it did, but, um, you know, it, it's the type of instrument, I think, where what you put in is what you get out. And um, generally speaking, I think any instrumentalist in the room would probably agree that one of the, the great frustrations of playing an instrument is you put in 100% and depending on your own abilities, your level of preparation and your instrument, you're getting out, you know, you put in 100% and maybe you're getting out 75%, maybe you're getting out 80%. And it's really, it's wonderful to have an instrument where you, you know that it's not gonna let you down and, and it gives you um, a real sense of personal responsibility. Like if something doesn't go right, I have no excuses, you know. I can't say, well, you know, it's an old violin, it's used. Um, what did those Cremonese know? They yeah, know? yeah, like, I, I, and, and that I actually find psychologically very, very helpful mm. to know that it's, it's up to me. It's all on you, kiddo. Um, I could talk to you all night, James. I've got to let you um, go and get ready to play said Stradivarius. And of course, we didn't even have time to mention the fact that James is also a fantastically virtuosic and accomplished viola player. Sorry about that. Um, if there are any very quick questions for James, if he's happy to take a couple, please raise your hand. Right in the front row then, and I'll take one more. Playing Bach as wonderfully as you do, do you feel it gives you an insight into the rather mysterious aspect of Bach, the human being, because he was composing decades before the more sort of romantic notions of the composer of someone who to some extent should be uh, an aesthetic innovator, even a revolutionary. And yet, even though he stayed within the conventions of his time, he pushed the possibilities of those conventions much further than any of his contemporaries. Yeah, well, I, I mean, Bach, 
the thing that is one of the things that's that to me is most remarkable about Bach is that he he's so many different people <laughs> in a way compositionally like you think of you think of Bach and uh, you know I think of say friends or family members of mine that appreciate music but are not in music um, and I remember speaking to actually a very good friend we we had one of these sort of not entirely sober music nights. We're listening to this and this and this and this. And um, Sounds great. I play, yeah, it was super fun. I played, I played a movement from a cello suite. I played uh, an organ choral prelude. I played an excerpt from the B minor mass. I played a movement from a Brandenburg concerto. Um, I think maybe that was it. And this person was just amazed that oh and I played the slow movement from the double violin concerto and this person was amazed that this was the same composer because uh, you know you think like I mean this the slow movement of the the double violin concerto I mean come on that's just so impossibly beautiful and when you when you think about beautiful music it doesn't really get past that then when when you think of you know, a piece like the musical offering, and you think about the intellectual, the staggering intellectual achievement of that. You think, well, that's just not fair. <laughs> you know, this was someone that was the best at so many different aspects of art, and uh, and his and the way that in the sonatas and partitas for violin, the way that all of that is combined. I mean, the the stupefying intellectual achievement of the fugues, the incredible vast architecture and emotional impact of the Chacon, the, the charm and beauty of some of the dance movements from the partitas, uh, the, the incredible lyrical simplicity of, say, the slow movement of the C major sonata. I, they they have everything and i think that in a way you could say like if you had to pick one piece to say well well who is bach tell me tell me in one one item who is bach you could say that six sonatas and partitas that 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 in a way is the most representative of everything he was and everything he did and um, within that the chacon you really had to narrow it down to one I think item? If, if you had to narrow it down to the best piece there is, that would probably be it. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not just Bach, that's just kind of everything. It's just it. just everything. Yeah. Blueprint for the rest of everything. Um, James, are you happy to take one more question? Yeah, sure. Perfect. Then over here. <laughs> Thank you. Do you always use a Strad for everything or contemporary yeah. instrument for contemporary works? Generally speaking, with very, very few exceptions, you know, like if I need to have some bit of maintenance done on, on the Strad or something, then, you know, I'll be playing on something else. But um, with very few exceptions, yeah, I play the Strad all the time. Um, there are colleagues of mine that they prefer using different pieces of equipment, whether it's violin or bow or even different strings or whatever it may be uh, for, for different repertoire. Um, 
which I can understand, but for me, I would rather have, if I'm playing on the same equipment basically all the time, my comfort level and my understanding of that equipment is going to be at its height. And I would rather feel most comfortable with the equipment that I'm using and then adapt myself rather than find something that I think is maybe fundamentally really well suited to one particular thing, but maybe I'm not quite as comfortable with it. Um, and again, it, it for me, and this is a totally personal decision, but it also is that um, that you know I play on a on a really great instrument, and it's that personal accountability issue that. I, I have this incredible luxury of playing on this golden period Strad. And if I say, well, yeah, but you know, it's not really, it didn't sound so great for this piece because it's not really suited. It's like, no, no, no. If it didn't sound so great, that's my fault. <laughs> and, and I'm comfortable with that. And I'm happy with, with that. Any other very quick questions? Or shall we let, uh, there's one more here and then we'll take the one back there. If you can keep your questions as succinct as possible, that'd be lovely. Thank you. Uh, my children, my daughter has a very, very hilarious violin. It is, uh, it is like bubblegum pink. <laughs> How she, old is she? She's five. And uh, yeah, so it, we went to visit a friend two years ago, I guess, whose daughter was starting the violin. And so we, we uh, were playing around with this little violin and my daughter, I, put it under her chin and she played a couple notes on the violin and um, for the next year or so anytime that anyone would say oh hey do, do you do you want to play the violin she would look at them kind of confused say well I already did <laughs> um, <laughs> which didn't really exude like great enthusiasm for pursuing it but um, but then we were walking past a shop window and she saw this I think it's an eighth size violin, this teensy uh, violin that was nail polished bubblegum pink. And she said, I didn't know they made them pink. So she has a pink violin. My son has a little, a little plastic violin, but he's only three and um, he doesn't treat it with the greatest of care. So I'm glad that it's plastic and not wood. Yeah, I have a three-year-old son. I wouldn't be letting him near the Strad anytime soon. Um, there was a question at the very back. Favorite performer of the Bach, Sonata, and Partitas? You know, I, that's really hard to say. There were, when I was growing up, there were recordings that I, that I listened to, recordings that I had. Um, the music, though, this tends to happen for me, that, that music that I've really spent a great deal of time with and performed myself, um, the music becomes a very separate entity than any performances of it that I know, even my own, <laughs> if that makes sense. So I really couldn't say. And, I, and as far as ones that were influential to me growing up, it's kind of hard to say as well. I mean, it's very, it's very distant. And, and I think that, you know, when I, when I listen to, to my, my friends and colleagues play Bach now, um, I find that the the performances that I enjoy are the ones where I feel a sense of, of total commitment and honesty to one's own idea. 
You know, when, when I hear performances of Bach in particular, where I feel like they're trying to convince me that this is how this music goes, that I never find convincing. But when I hear performances that are like, this is how I feel this music speaks, then that, that speaks to me. Like I think of, you know, I grew up with one of the recordings of Bach that I had was, was of Yasha Heifetz. And I don't think there's any bit of all six of them that I play particularly like the way Heifetz did. And I, I wouldn't look at that as necessarily my own model of how to play it, but his playing is so 100% completely convinced of itself that I can't help but find it compelling. It's a wonderfully eloquent and poetic answer. We'll let you get away with the evasion and the diplomatic uh, inability to answer. Thank you so much to James. Thank you, Thank everyone. You to all. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.